Welcome to the Talking to Ourselves podcast, episode 30. When you say that number out loud, it doesn't sound that impressive, but I'm calling it an accomplishment nevertheless. And episode 30 is a good one. Scott Bell, Executive Creative Director at Droga5. Ask anyone in the know, who are the handful of creative leaders who've helped Droga5 achieve world domination? And Scott Bell will always be towards the top of that list. After getting his start as a copywriter at JWT, Scott joined Droga in 2009, just three years after its inception. Since then, he's racked up every major accolade for campaigns like Newcastle's If We Made It, the hilarious Super Bowl hijack that took home Adweek's top ad of 2014. He invented the infamous Pie Top sneakers for Pizza Hut. He turned IHOP into IHOB. He is currently helping Dos Equis keep it interesante. No matter the client, his work has an uncanny ability to just make me feel pangs of jealousy every single time. He's a creative superstar, and on top of that, he's just one of the funniest, nicest dudes I've gotten to know through the business over the years. This is Scott Bell and I talking to ourselves. Um, <laughs> I, was, I was telling Jeff, though, that I'm realizing what the next podcast series is, yeah. which is... I start every one of these, what we start recording, and then we kind of find a natural point in. Right. But I'm usually sort of like laying the ground rules and saying like, hey, just talk and I'll you know edit anything out that's overly controversial. And in doing that warning, we usually end up talking shit about somebody or talking shit about the industry. Right. So I'm realizing once I'm ousted from the industry unceremoniously, I'll create a new podcast series called Dirty Laundry. Right. Where it's just the first 15 minutes that have been edited out of every yeah. episode I've done so far. I feel like, yeah, I've listened to a lot of your podcasts and it's uh, – I feel like I – like a lot of people that have been on here have are so successful that they probably get a pass for some of the more controversial things they say, you know? So listening to it, I'm like, oh, I don't think I get that pass, you know? Like I, think <laughs> I have to be like a little bit extra careful. It's funny like even – having a conversation with you without there being a like a nice bottle of red wine on the table i feel like we should be waiting for the the uh like grilled octopus to show up <laughs> like we only pretty much i don't know if i have ever yeah. talked to you outside of like a dinner dinner is the best environment or like an email we, we, email back and we forth. met at paul's kid kids four-year-old birthday party that's right yeah and then Paul was like, hey, that's Scott. He writes a drug. I'm like, well, he's like, he did this thing. I was like, oh, shit. And he's like, and he also did that thing. I was like, oh, shit. And I was like, I got to go talk to this guy. I didn't know he existed, but it turns out I'm actually, I might be his biggest fan. That's funny. Um, I remember the first time that I heard about you because I had, I'd had a lot of friends that went to Crispin. And, and, and several of them had gotten there, and I would hear stories about you because you came in and within, like the stories I heard was that within like six months, you were a creative director at Crispin. And I remember my first thought was like, fuck this guy. Like, <laughs> and I, it was a little longer than that, but let's go with six months. That seems good. I feel like that was the story. It's like you came in, you were like immediately a creative director. And I was like, oh, I hate this guy already. <laughs> but then like getting to know you, you're a very cool, nice guy. So. Dude. Well, you know, normally we start off, you know, with a little bit of origin story. But I feel like. You know, there's an elephant in the room that just needs to be addressed before we even get into it. And it'll be distracting if we don't just talk about it right away, which is um, your LinkedIn page hasn't been updated in six years. <laughs> should we pause the the podcast and just get a quick – it still we says should. that you work at at, uh, at Barton F. Graff. Does it? Yeah. I think uh, I've never really – I never really – it's funny. Like every once every two years, I might log on to LinkedIn just because there's – just to see what messages I have in there. But – I think it's just like I'm really happy, you know, where I'm at. I feel like I have like the best job in the world. So I've never been a person who's like 
networking too much to find the next job. I probably I probably should be, but I've just always been really comfortable where I'm at and like what I'm doing, so I don't really pay much attention to LinkedIn. I don't know. Yeah, not active on not an active LinkedIn user for sure. I'm not an active like any social media person at all. So that's where the head of like Droga HR is just it's like. All of a sudden, your you know your book is updated, and you're you know you're posting on LinkedIn. It's like I think uh, we might want to have a conversation with Scott. Like yeah, it's I, I this flurry like, of activity after six years dormant. Yeah, I think usually I feel like with like headhunters, I, I don't really hear from them very often, and uh, and I think it's just because they they get tired of reaching out to me and 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 not and, and me not being interested in doing something else. Uh, so it's a little bit of a blessing and a curse, I guess. But I, 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 then I see other people get jobs and I'm like, well, I don't know. Why didn't they talk to me about that job? But I think it's, it's because people know that I'm, I'm, I'm pretty happy where I'm at. So. Yeah. It's like Roy Williams going to North Carolina. I mean, of course there's always a job, but you're right to be really selective. And I mean, not to put your business on front street, but like, you know, there's been a couple times where. A headhunter has asked me, like, hey, do you know anyone who'd be a great, you know, CCO of this place or that place? And I always send it to you and always within five minutes you're like, ah, thanks, man. <laughs> but, you know, I think I think part of it is, like, we talk about Droga 5 as we talk about Wyden Kennedy, as we talk about BBDO. And it's like those places have been around for 30, 50, 100 years. And Droga 5, we forget, has been around for a little over a decade. Yeah. And so, like, you're at a really special place at a really special time. And I can say from experience, like – you know, I mean, I think you have a, you seem to have a really profound grasp of the fact that, like, when all the ingredients are just right to make, you know, work that is disruptive, that's interesting, that clients will buy, there's a value to that. Like, yes, money has a value and opportunity has a value and, like, creative outlet has a value. And you just seem like you, you sort of know what that quotient is for you. Yeah, I think so. And I think uh... – I've worked at other places, you know, so I, I it's not like Droga is the only place I've been. So I've had experience at I've had experience at bigger agencies. I started at JWT and I've had experiences at smaller agencies and and I've always felt most comfortable at Droga for whatever reason. I don't know exactly what it is. I think uh, I think part of it for me is like Droga really prides itself on not having a house style so much. Right. And. So it's kind of up to everyone there to like have their own voice and and do the work that that they want to do, do the best version of the work that they want to do. Uh, so you feel you definitely feel like less like a cog in a machine there, and you feel like you get to do the stuff that you want to go into work to do. So like I'm always excited to go into work, and like I I I I really enjoy it. So and I've had that experience of not enjoying going into work every day, right. and it's not something that I'm eager to get back to. Yeah. Know. So let's go back to where are you from and what did your parents do? Because I think your origin is a big part of your identity. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm from Owensboro, Kentucky, uh, which is the third largest city in Kentucky. The uh, it's uh, I think has a lot of records that are like per capita Said with records. Chest puffed out in great pride. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's the uh, let's see, it's the fast food cap- capital of the world. Apparently, more fast food restaurants per capita than anywhere else. That's a claim to fame. Yeah, okay. yeah. and uh, I've heard that it's the the most lit up city from space at night, the most visible city from space at night per capita. So <laughs> I don't even know how to pro- I don't know how to process that, that. I don't know what that means either. Uh, but yeah, it's a, it's just a small town in Kentucky. And um, what'd your folks do there? So my they did they did several things. My dad, when I was growing up, my dad was. Uh, 
he was an industrial sandblaster, which is uh, kind of a crazy job where they would uh, they like rappel down into water towers and and sandblast sandblast the rust out of uh, water towers. Apparently, like a really dangerous job. Yeah. Like I'm I'm very proud to be from Kentucky. I mean, I always felt like it was part of my identity. I'm a, I'm a, I feel like everybody knows. I tell everybody I'm a Kentucky Colonel, as appointed by the governor of Kentucky. Um, Once you realize you were too big to be a winning jockey in the Kentucky Derby, what was the thing you wanted to be when you were about 12 years old? I, I, well, from a very young age, I always said I wanted to be a lawyer, which I didn't really know what a lawyer did. I think I just liked money and I knew that they were rich. Um, so I, I would say lawyer, but then probably right about the time I was 12, I also had the, I, I went to Catholic school my whole life. And I had a weird moment where I thought I was being called to be a priest. And Whoa. yeah, because like the thing in Catholic school is they'll tell you that um, the like every, anyone could get the calling to be a priest, and you just know if you're getting that calling. And if you ignore that calling, you go to hell, right? Uh, and I didn't want to go to hell, but the whole thing was kind of stupid because. I didn't like church at all. Like I wasn't even an altar boy, you know, like I, I hated going to church, but I, for some reason was convinced like, oh, I might actually be getting called to be a priest. And I, and, and, but I really didn't want to do it. And so I can remember going to my mom crying and saying like, I think I might be getting called to be a priest, but I don't want to be a priest. You know, I, like, I feel like I, I, I want to get married and I want to do other stuff. And fortunately, she was like, well, it's stupid. Like, just don't be a priest. Like, you don't have to be a priest if you don't want to be a priest, you know? Did you have a dream or was it more like there was so much energy around the conversation that it's hard not to personalize it and be like, maybe I'm getting the call? No, I think they just talk, they just talk about it in school. You know, yeah. like I would hear priests talk about it and, and, you, and I think maybe I was just impressionable. I don't know. Um, and and, they, and you, there's like a built-in guilt that comes along with it. And Heard about just, this. Yeah, was, I mean, Catholic guilt's a real thing. And, uh, and, and so I, 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 I thought I was going to, I thought, but I do, I do think that there are some things that make a great priest that also make for a great creative, which go on. I, th- I think, uh, empathy is a big thing, uh, in both. Like you, you kind of have to be able to read people and understand what people are thinking. You have to be a good communicator, you know, and, 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 and ultimately we're all just like, they're, I don't know, sort of like being cult leaders a little bit, but. Yeah, you want to have a profound effect on people. Yeah, yeah. Leave them with something to remember, something to hold on to. You got to be available 24 hours a day. I mean, I come from as far away from advertising as you can imagine, and no one I, I know had ever had anything to do with it. And I, when I went to college, I was still in the law school frame of mind. So I was like, at first I was doing pre-law, and I realized pretty quickly that I, I hated that. So I, I heard I, – I actually went to my – guidance counselor and I was like I don't know what to do I like I wanted to be I wanted to be a lawyer I hated that I'm in art studio I like that but I'm never going to make money at it and they had just started a creative advertising program there like the year before and she was like well, why don't you try this creative advertising thing like it's you you get to be creative but it it also has a mix of business to it and there's direct deposit every two weeks if you can get yeah. a job yeah <laughs> yeah and i and i literally like kind of looked into it and it's like okay so this is like a job where i can wear jeans to work and you know but have a like like you said like a uh, a paycheck and so that's kind of what got me into it and i was like i don't know we'll see it's come up with a couple people anytime your name comes up 
that there's sort of a folklore around your book coming out yeah. of Miami Ad School that it was like, you know, some call it the work of a madman, some call it the work of a genius. There was like <laughs> sort of no one's ever seen anything I call like it, it before. The work of desperation. Yeah. Probably. What 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 was your book that all these uh, years later people were still talking about? I'm. I mean, I'm, I am really glad to hear that people still think about it and talk about it. Uh, but it was it was crazy, and it was my. I just felt like. All the books, it was like a sea of sameness when you looked at student portfolios then that were like, they were just, this is when you still sent out a printed book and they were all 11 by 17 printed books with like a series of ads that you flip through, usually like beautifully photoshopped. Um, But a lot of it was like visual metaphors that were like beautifully photoshopped. And I just kind of didn't really like that stuff so much. And I, I did a few months in London and I really loved like the philosophy there. We had these uh, teachers. I wish I could remember their names now, but they were great. And they, um, the the assignments were always like they wouldn't even give you a brand. You just had to make an ad for toothpaste or an ad for bread. Yeah. And it had to be a marker comp, and it had to make you think about that thing in a new way that you hadn't thought about it before. So like, whereas you would see ads, all the ads at that time in student books were like for whitening toothpaste, and it would be like so, like teeth that were bright blinding blindingly bright we did we would do ad like we had a campaign for toothpaste that was all about leaving better dental records and it and but it was just marker comped too and it wasn't even for a brand i may maybe eventually put like crest on the bottom or something but it wasn't really even for uh a brand so i had a lot of those ads in there and the whole thing came in a box and the idea there was like a theme to the to the to my portfolio which was like I'm not very organized. I, I tend to keep things in piles, and but I kind of know where everything is. It's just like the system that works for me, you know? Uh, and so my portfolio was a reflection of that. It was just like a pile of stuff that you were supposed to flip through. And there were like random scraps of paper in there and uh, and ads that you could that you would find as you went through it. Most of them were marker comped ads with uh, – there was, it was a lot of crazy stuff in there. Um, and I think I was kind of, I mean, if I'm honest, I kind of think I was thinking at the time, like I didn't, I didn't want to end up at a big agency. I wanted to be at like a small independent cool agency. And I think I was thinking like, I want a portfolio that just scares the big agencies away, which is like such a stupid way to think in hindsight, you know, but I kind of wanted a portfolio that was like no big agency would even be interested in me. Um, what I found out when I started sending out my books is that the smaller agencies, were, were like they would be intrigued by it, but they're like, look, we we're only hiring one copywriter yeah. this year, and they've got to be solid. Like, we really got to get this right. <laughs> yeah, we really, can't experiment you're with a this hire. A wild card, <laughs> yeah. so like we like it, but we don't know. And I got a lot of crazy feedback from it. Uh, and at the same time, I was also I had like finished school and gone back to Kentucky, and was working construction with my uncles and. So I'm sending out my portfolio from Owensboro, Kentucky, working construction during the day. And it, it, like occasionally I would hear from like somebody in New York who was like, hey, can you come up? Can you be here tomorrow for an interview? It's like, well, I, I can't really because I'm broke and I'm in rural Kentucky right now and <laughs> have no way of getting there. So they'd be like, oh, okay, never mind. But I get a lot of crazy feedback. A lot of people that I talked to would say mother was pretty new. And a lot of people would say, oh, you're not right for here, but you'd, you'd be great at mother. You should talk to mother. But I, no one at Mother would email me back. And um, and then I remember on Christmas morning, literally on Christmas morning, 
I got an email from a creative director at Mother, and I can't I can't remember her name now. Um, but it was like four pages long, and I felt like it just totally ripped my portfolio apart. And at the end of it, it said, if I had to sum up your portfolio, I would probably have to call it masturbation in a box. And I was like, oh, fuck. It's like, it was so bad it was hilarious, you know? Like, it was so, it was just so brutally it's e- honest. It's easy that, to laugh about now, but this is yeah. like probably, you know, this is incredibly traumatic news to hear. I, it was actually kind of easy to laugh about then because it was it was just so, so brutally honest that I, I, I found it kind of hilarious. But I... I love when a when like a higher up at an agency takes that much time to destroy you. It's like, I thought you're like, are you not having a busy day today? Yeah, oh yeah, well, on, yeah, on Christmas Day of all days <laughs> to get it too, and uh, and so I'm in Kentucky and I, I like I decided I'd gotten so much crazy feedback that I I made I I made a cartoon where I took Google images of just random people and I like crudely uh, photoshopped their mouth. For each, and I, I did a different one for each creative director that gave me feedback. Some of it was good, some of it was like really bad. But I called the cartoon "Masturbation in a Box," and then the last line was uh, was all her feet. And I made her a female bodybuilder who talked like this. And if I had to sum up your portfolio in one line, I would probably call it "Masturbation in a Box." Um, and I ended up working, getting my first job at JWT. New York instead. So you designed this book that's that's designed to designed to scare off scare off big agencies, and then you go to the biggest oldest agency there is. Yeah, okay. yeah. Life's and, funny. Yeah, and it turned out good. I mean, I, I like. I feel like it. I, I would be lying if I said I was pumped that I was going to JWT instead of Wyden, obviously. Um, but I think everything was like everything worked out, and um, and I got like really good opportunities at JWT. I mean, I worked on like. Swedish Fish and JetBlue and um, what else did I do there? The choo- MTV Choose or Lose. Like I, I had cool projects there that I really liked. And in some ways I feel like I got to like – I don't know. I, it felt like I got to find my own voice maybe even more there than I would have somewhere else. You know. Well, you know, like being disruptive, breaking rules, some of the things that you talked about – sort of turning you on from an early age. Those things are harder to teach. I'm, I'm guessing that going to a place like that, first of all, it's just nice to be employed. It's hard to get a job out of school. So yeah. now you're employed and you got a foot in the door, but you're also at a place that's, I'm going to assume, probably teaching you a little bit about what it means to be a professional. Yeah. You know, what it means to show up every day, what it means to overcome adversity, what it means to like be in a room with eight other people and and figure out how we're going to walk out of here with some consensus. Yeah, I think you have to learn in those places. I think you just have to learn how to cheat the system a little bit. Like it teaches you how to work the system. If you you know if you're gonna if you're gonna get ahead. I mean, I worked with Dan Trichel there a lot, who you know, and I think we kind of had an approach that was like it. Our office was like our own. We treated it like our own agency that just happened to work inside JDBT. So we had to make decisions based on what we wanted to do, you know, and I think that kind of helped us like uh, get the stuff out that we wanted to get out while we were there. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think you learn a lot in those places that that uh, also makes you like it's I, I always find it kind of funny when they're creatives that uh, will come into a place like Droga right out of school and they've only worked at Droga and that's yeah. all that they know. And 
and sometimes you want to like say like you don't know how good you have it, you know, like yeah. <laughs> there's you could be somewhere else where you have to deal with. Because I think like we we're fortunate enough at Droga to have like like clients come to us for what we do, you know, yeah. and and for like creative stuff. Uh, whereas I think sometimes at like some of the bigger not all of them, I mean, some of them do great creative work and they, and people come to that for, but but some of them. They don't come there for the creative. They come there for other reasons. And you always feel like you're trying to like sell them on doing something creative that they don't really want to do. Yeah. Or, you're always trying to to do something against their will. Yeah. Versus at Wyden, at Droga, you know, at the height of CPB, it's like these this these handful of places where they've come they've come to be out of their comfort zone. And by the way, everyone yeah. knows the right stuff to say. Like, oh, I want to be out of my comfort zone. We want to, you know, disruptive creativity. What, what's the press going to write? Everyone knows the right stuff to say, it, but it's one thing to say it. It's one thing to be shown it yeah. and say yes to it and put your name on it. And and there, I think there are a lot of large companies where like everyone talks a good game, but they're actually not incentivized to take risk. They're incentivized to move food around a plate and yeah. survive and um, so let, we'll come back to that because I, I think that's sort of like the the secret ingredient of why the bar is set high for Droga is an interesting topic. But but first, I actually want to ask you, like, you know, you were at JWT for about four years. You go to Droga at in 2009. The agency had been around for about three years. Just paint a picture for me of sort of what you're walking into. I mean, I remember they had some juice yeah. at the time. But at three years in, probably still a pretty small agency. What, what was the attraction yeah. to Droga in 2009? Uh, I, I already, they were already doing really great work that, and, and, um, and I'd seen David speak while I was in school and I, and I would always, I always, I mean, I knew he was great. Uh, so I wanted to be a part of that. I liked that it was small. Um, and I can, I, I actually, is it like 50 people in 2009? It was less. It was probably like 25 people wow. or so. It was, it was, I mean, it was, it was, it was really small. Um, um, like Thanksgiving's a big uh, a big tradition at at Droga. They do a big Thanksgiving every year. It's like a big buffet or a uh, potluck Thanksgiving, and it, it was so different then because it's like everyone could fit around yeah. one table, one turkey, and and it, and the potluck thing made sense then because like one person brought turkey and one person brought stuffing, and we still do it now. But now it's like white glove catering. <laughs> no, yeah, no, it's like <laughs> everyone still brings things, but it's like there's 50 turkeys and and there's like. 70 things of green bean casserole um and it's fun but i i get a little grossed out by it now because you you like look at all the if you see 70 different kinds of green bean casserole you realize like i don't want to touch that stuff but uh but it was it was so much it was it was a lot smaller then it's always funny when i'm like interviewing people now and they and and i'm like well so you have any questions about droga and they're like well i've never worked in a big agency before and i'm always like what where we're not, but we're not like a big agency, you know. Like, yeah. To me, it still feels like, like there, enough of us have been there for the whole. Like, there's there's a lot of people that have been there ten years, not just me. And I still think of it as the same place in a lot of ways. Uh, so that always catches me off guard. But I do remember when I first got there, it was kind of like it was, it was like pure chaos in a lot of ways. Like I'd been so used to at JWT, the system was like it was very. Uh, regimented of like you get briefed on this day and you work on it for four days and then you have your first check-in with the creative director and then two days later you have your second check-in with the creative director and the next day you have an internal meeting and then we do one more internal and then it goes to the client on this date and it would always like really stick to that schedule and I remember the first thing I 
worked on a droga. I got in and and uh, and they were like, "All right, so we have a client meeting in five days, and we need some scripts. So let's just get started." And so I'm like, "All right, so start working." And I'm like, "When are we gonna? When are we gonna check in and like have our first like internal meeting?" And it's like, "Oh, I don't know. We'll figure it out." Like. Tomorrow Maybe like the day before. Yeah. Well, let's meet up the day before. It's like well, nobody thought about this before we started. <laughs> and then, uh, and it was just like you just didn't know. Like it, it was kind of like chaos and like, but it, but in the best possible way, I think. Like I, I think that um, there was always like this weird confidence to the agency that was like it doesn't matter. We'll get we'll we'll figure it out and we'll get to something good, you know. And if at the last minute we didn't have something good, like the whole agency would just pile on and you just knew that you weren't going to go to a meeting without great work like was so much of it like hey this needs to culminate with like david's gut instincts are on fire right now like david saw it and david is like holy shit guys if they don't like this fuck them because this is really good and if you could sort of like capture that feeling then you were in the rights is that what like because i remember sort of there was a point in c at cbb when alex was still heavily involved where it's like everything kind of bottlenecked with him and if he was confident in it, then like nothing else really mattered and the confidence just cascaded across the rest of the agency. Yeah. T- I mean, I think definitely that like you knew if, if, if he was buying in, you know, that was, that was more than half the battle. I, I felt like you would, all the meetings were in David's office and it's like that you would, a lot of times that's where, where you would show the work the first time was to David in his office. And it was funny because like he, at that time, I mean, it's still now, but like, at that time, he uh, he had really good relationships with all the clients that we were working with. So you could literally be presenting him something, and in the middle of the presentation, if he likes something, he's like, oh, that's cool. And he would just turn around and pick up the phone and call the client and be like, we've got to do this. This is, you know, here's the idea. And you could sell an idea that fast if, it was, if, it, if it was good enough, you know. Um, I remember the first time, my very first day there, uh, I didn't have a partner yet, and uh, and I'd been sitting. I got in. I sat down for like I was there maybe like twenty minutes, and David's assistant Mindy came over, and she was like, "Hey, so David has a big Puma meeting uh, at the end of the day today, and he needs to like think some things through. Can you pop into his office in like ten minutes and just sit and think with him a little?" And I was like, "Well, what kind of fucked up?" test is this you know like it it really felt like some kind of mind game or something and i had so i had to go into his office and it turned out to just like like be a legitimate brainstorming session where he just wanted to think about ideas and it was it felt like really natural and not like a test at all and i feel like that's always since then has been the case working with him like he really he really does just like like doing the work and like do and it's never I don't know. He's, he he has a way of like he he can be intimidating because he's, he's David Droga, but at the same time, like he's very approachable and like he, and pretty easy to work with, and and he's always been like involved in that in that way. So I think when you're young, you just you create these three act plays in your head because it's you're you're you're, you're the center of your own, your own universe, and maybe you don't have a family yet, or maybe I don't know. You just yeah. don't have a lot of experience. So when someone says, "Can you help?" you just feel like there's like these sinister motives or this is some this is some turning point in your life and it's like nope the guy would just like like a you know a young energetic brain in the room because he doesn't want to think about everything himself and um it was actually you know you were the first person who told me over dinner i was like i was like the reason 
I'll never be super rich is because if I ever got super rich, like you would never hear from me again. Right. You, the industry would never see me again. There's certainly no goddamn podcast. And, <laughs> and so I'm like, I assume, you know, you see David once a month, you know, they you know prop him up for parades and you're like, nope, he's like yeah. at a wall looking at white paper fucking comps. I'm like, how is that possible? Yeah. And I asked him that and he's like, I don't know. Like, what would I do? I like it. I like ideas. Yeah. Um, so it's sort of shocking to me. Yeah, he certainly has like his projects that he's more involved with than others. But I mean, he's there. He, yeah, he's there all the time. And he's still super involved with everything. Yeah, uh, it's interesting. You said that this kind of the secret sauce early on, or at least like the modus operandi early on, was just lack of process. You know, I think everyone talks about like winning processes and um, you know proprietary processes for each agency. And you're talking about almost like the the removal of process was what got to. What what came to be like a signature drug idea as the agency has grown, have you guys been able to retain some of that chaos and lack of process that ends up being kind of like cheap fuel that fuels agencies, or or is it impossible not to have process become yeah. overwhelming as the agency grows? I think like uh, even uh, well, it's a mix of yeah, it's a mix of the two because even like early on the chaos like it sometimes you did feel like oh we could use a little more organization, you know, and, and process. So, like, I think we've done a good job of adding some process to it without, like, overwhelming the creative. And and I think we can still keep it uh, sort of fresh by, like, just trying certain different things. Like, I always try to, like, throw things in where it's, like, during the after a review or something, it's like, all right, let's do one more round where we just, like, just be selfish and, like, do whatever you think you want to make, you know, and like don't – and like kind of forget about the process that we're in right now. Like what would you just want to – what would be cool to make, you know, and have a have a round in there that like mixes it up a little bit or, you know, um, and, and just try to embrace like an idea coming from outside the process um, as much as we – as much as we can. But yeah, sometimes we do have to follow the process just to get everything done. Yeah. My five years at CPB, we were agency of the year three times, and every time we would win it, I just remember thinking to myself, like, our hair is on fire. We are hanging on by a thread. <laughs> and and honestly, I would also think to myself, you know, there are days where I'm interacting with people at this agency who are geniuses, and there are other days where I'm interacting with people at this agency who are dipshits. <laughs> and so if we're agency of the year, like, what is happening everywhere else? And I think it's part of growing up in the industry is, like, you just assume the best places have all A-plus people, but – it's more like there's a handful of A plus people and then there's a handful of, you know, B people, but the the agency and the culture help them play up to a B plus. And there's some C people and the agency helps them play up to a C plus or a B minus. I don't not a drug, it's all A plus people there. Okay, cool. I just wanted to clarify. <laughs> Thank you for that. At agencies across the country and across the world, cool ideas are yeah. are are on walls and littering the floors. Do you feel like maybe the difference is like at a place like Droga, at a place like Widen, at a place that at any given time has that benefit of the doubt that's in that 1% that it's not about coming up with it, which is hard in and of itself, but it's the harder thing, which is any a lot of people can come up with it. Very few can sell it. Yeah. Like like how is the salesmanship aspect of it uh, kind of factored into your love of being there? It's funny because I think there's less salesmanship than you might imagine. Like it's a little more – I think we spend a lot of time like working on the ideas. I've I've had clients say that it that like after meetings they'll say you know it's really it's funny like our last agency would bring would, would when they were presenting they would come in with these like beautifully designed decks that was like like the Photoshop was great and everything was like 
really meticulous and like your your presentation is much sloppier, but the ideas are better, you know. Right. And do you guys do that on purpose? I don't know if it's on purpose. I mean, I not necess- not necessarily on purpose. I think it's just maybe it's just that like we are confident in the ideas and we try and and like we're not trying to like fool someone into thinking they're good ideas. Like and we try like I, I think I try to spend I mean, personally I like if I'm really honest, I'm 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 pretty hard on myself, so I never think anything is good enough. And so, just in the I, like the rounds where you're coming up with ideas, it tends to be like spending more time coming up with the ideas and less time. Like I'm never really that confident early on to be like, okay, this is great. Now let's like make it look beautiful before right. the meeting. It's always like let's keep pushing it and pushing it, and we've just run out of time. And so then you yeah. go into the you go into the meeting with like the best ideas you have that maybe aren't like beautifully comped um but i i prefer to work that way and i i feel like i get to better work that way than like jumping into like designing it uh too early there's an interesting psychology too that if you heavily comp something it's hard for a client not to look at that and go like okay so this this is what it's supposed to look like versus if it's a little bit less put together it's a little bit less thought out you're allowing for their imagination to be part of the process yeah and like so um is there a right number of ideas to bring into a meeting do you like do you guys like you know cpb we liked to overwhelm with ideas because the thought was like we can make any of these great but then i've also worked at places where it's like we brought the one and if you don't like the one then you're. i've always kind of liked a drug that sometimes we bring the one and it like if you i think it just depends on the ideas and the project but there, it was one of the things I learned early on at Droga is like if there's one idea that you want to make, like never take an idea into a meeting that you don't want to make, you know, that you're not happy with because you're anytime you're putting it uh, on the table to to buy, you could end up making that thing. And so sometimes there's only one idea you want to sell, and it and you really feel like it's the right idea, then it's okay to go in with one idea or one script or whatever, you know, like I. I don't think we're the kind of place that like over that usually overwhelms people with options. Um, but on the other hand, there are some times that like in, in some clients where it is kind of like you know you have a good relationship with them and you and you can present a lot of things and see what they like, but and know that you're not going to get stuck with something if you if if it's not exactly your favorite thing, you can talk them out of it. You know, so it, it sort of depends. But I liked I I like the confidence of being like this is the thing you should make. Right. And relationships are key. And you said, yeah, sometimes David or another – at this point, there's lots of people with great reputations there who can pick up a phone and sort of cut through the formality of the process and talk to a client who you've built trust with and just say like, hey, can I gut check this idea with you? And it's a little bit of the cheat code. Yeah. But you know, I think for a place like Droga5, you know, I think for young creatives out there, either in ad school or just getting into the business, like can you please dispel the myth um, that it's easy and that – all you got to do is get to one of these places and everything you touch turns to gold. And yeah. there are people who are there thriving and making award-winning work. And there are other people who've been there for years who it's not be, not for a lack of effort. It's not for a lack yeah. of brilliance. That it's just hard and clients are hard everywhere. Yeah, it's not I, – I, I think it's like – it's definitely not – like like any agency, drug is not for everyone and you could – there's certainly times that people get there and 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 have have a very it's 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 not easy and I think there's like if there's a difference between I, I remember when I was starting at JWT they they there was a one of my creative directors said you know if you can just do one good thing a year 
you'll be golden. Right. And at, when I got to Droga, it's sort of the opposite. They're like, it's like the expectation is everything needs to be great. Like there are no clients that we like just take a knee on. Everything's, everything is an opportunity to be amazing, which not everything turns out great. Like we make plenty of stuff that's not great. Uh, but I think we've really stuck to that of like you got – like everything has to be great. Um, and I, and then in the process, you kind of learn like when you treat everything that way at the end of the year, instead of – if you are if you set out to make one great thing a year, you end up with nothing. If you set out to make everything great, you end up with like five or six things yeah. that are really great every year, you know? And um, I can't remember what, like where I started with that or why, why I got to that, <laughs> but – uh, I I think that that's oh I, no I know where I was going because if you're a creative coming in there, there's a lot of pressure to that too of like everything's got to be great. Well, there's pockets of sensibilities, you know. I mean, I think you have a certain sensibility and that's led to work that we'll talk about in a minute, and then there's a sensibility that leads to you know the Under Armour work or to the New York Times work. Yeah. And what does it feel like when you sort of represent a sensibility in the agency? That attaches you to a client or a project, and and it it turns out good, but not great, not award winning. Like, do you, is there a competitiveness within the agency, or do you feel like you've let people down? Like, uh, you've not held up your end of the bargain. I personally never let anyone down there right. the entire time I've been. But just hypothetically, <laughs> maybe someone, one of the other sensibilities. How do they feel? Um, I think. Yeah. Or do you just move on, and it's like, all right, on to the next thing? Yeah, I feel like I've I, I've definitely always had this point of view that's like, not I, I know not everything's going to be great, and like I don't I ever want to get hung up on something that didn't turn out great. Like, I always want to be just like moving on, and uh, like my I've always felt like uh, you just want to be making stuff all the time, and no one's gonna, I mean, unless it's like a colossal failure. It, the worst that's going to happen is people just forget about it pretty quickly, you know. Yeah. And I feel like that's that's the case with most things that aren't great. They, it's it, you know, you're never happy with things that go under the radar. But at the end of the day, too, if that's the worst thing that's going to happen, then like, fine. Um, so as long as you're as long as you're like being prolific and making a lot of stuff, people will remember the good things. They'll forget about the the shitty things. Yeah. Um, Drogo was recently on the Ad Age podcast where he talked at length about the um, the Accenture acquisition and for people who are interested in that they should listen to that that episode because it's really good I just wanted to ask you one question related to that which is um, when news of that nature breaks um, how is it communicated to the agency in such a way that kind of everyone understands it won't compromise that which they love about working at Droga. Is that a, a town hall? I mean, you're kind of on the inside, yeah. so I'm guessing maybe you were hearing rumblings before the agency yeah. at large found out. But, like, what is the announcement process for something of that magnitude? Uh, I, I mean, I think I, was, I, I did hear rumblings of it before, and so it wasn't, like, it wasn't shocking or anything. And for anybody that's been there for any amount of time, it's like you kind of know that that's the – that this was always, like, the direction the agency was going. So it feels – it kind of, like – Kind of feels like the next logical progression of the agency in a lot of ways, um, and I think it was like communicated. I think the most comforting thing about the way it was communicated is like we're like things aren't we're not expected to change what we do, right? You know, like as especially as creatives in the agency, probably more than any other department, like our 
our whole task is to just keep doing what we're doing. And yeah. so, you know, like as long as we know like this, the, all the key people are still in place in the creative department, all the clients are still in place in the creative department, and our job is the same, but we're supposed to come in and do the same thing that we've been doing every day. And it's not like there are Accenture people in the halls like evaluating creative work all of a sudden. And Yeah, I mean David's point – in the podcast that I'm sure, you know, he did a version of to the agency was like, we do what we do yeah. and and this is a competitive advantage that helps make our work smarter, that helps make our work more undeniable to our clients and like, you know, the dude just – he puts everything in such – he's such a competitor yeah. that I think he, you know, he sees it as like the next great stage of competitive advantage for the agency. Totally. You know? yeah. And again, it's been around – we talk about it like it's been around for 100 years. It's been around for 13 years. Like. Yeah. I understand why you're precious when someone comes and tries to poach you, which is like you're not at the end of something. You're at the beginning of something. You yeah. Know? And you've been there for long enough that you've grown up with people there and, you know, they've seen you get married and have kids and you've seen them get married and have kids and go from being a degenerate to a, you know, a functioning member of right. society, yeah. which that in and of itself is a really special thing, I think, in any workplace. But, um, you know, it. I think when that news broke, it's shocking to people and it feels like, you know, is this – the end of an era, but actually when you dig in a little and when you hear David talk about it and when you see the the continuation of work that sets the bar for the industry, it's like I think this is maybe the beginning of something. You know? Yeah, and I think we're, we're, we tend to be like optimistic uh, about everything there. So like I, I think we're, we're all excited about yeah. what it could bring. So. Yeah. Well, I, I started the conversation saying, you know, uh, your work has consistently made me super jealous. I wanted to get into – a couple of individual projects because, um, you know, they've they've been projects that have sort of set the standard. And I think as we talk about some of your background, they've been kind of precursors of your taste and the way you approach creativity. You yeah. can really see that you can really see how those were expressed through some of your best work. And the first one is um, if we made it for Newcastle, which was kind of the great Super Bowl hijack of 2014. Yeah. So I don't know if there's a specific question here other than like, can you take me back a little bit to like, you know, was there a great brief in place? Was there sort of a lack of brief in place that was, you know, the, the great the great advertising brief today is like, we just want to do something that's super famous. And it's like, cool, <laughs> we'll be back to you in two days. Like, what was the process? Was it a was it a difficult process or, or was it sort of um, did, did things kind of click into place quickly with that idea? Uh, yeah, I think I think things clicked into place relatively quickly, but it was, um, I think in the beginning it was like the Newcastle was a very desperate client, which is <laughs> kind of, that can be great as a creative. I think there's certain things you hear where your ears perk up and you're like, Oh, this is an opportunity. And one of those is like when a, when a brand or a client's desperate, you know, that like they're willing to take big swings. Um, so they were de- they were desperate. Yeah, they the their their every year their marketing budget was getting slashed, and it's not like we were sort of desperate too. Um, and they kind of knew if they didn't make some noise, uh, that they might just stop advertising Newcastle. So it kind of started from that place, and a little bit it was like we we just need to be famous. Um, but then we the whole campaign had been based around. Uh, it was it was no bollocks, and it was it was kind of all about calling bullshit on marketing, and particularly beer marketing and advertising. And and so uh, I can't remember like I, it maybe maybe the original idea to just even like go after the Super Bowl could have been from Tom Notton, our our strategist on it. Um, and it was like what do 
if we're if if we're a brand that calls bullshit on marketing, then the Super Bowl is like the biggest bowl of bullshit in the world. Let's let's go after that. Um, and so it was kind of a, like from the beginning it was like a fun project to go to work on. Um, and the thing that was like not, like nice about setting our sights on the Super Bowl at the time was the Super Bowl had really gotten to this point where it was so predictable of like exactly what was going to happen every year that like two weeks out from the Super Bowl the or three weeks out from the Super Bowl, you would start getting leaks of what the ads were going to be. Two weeks out, they released the actual spots online. The Today Show does their roundup of like the top 10 Super Bowl spots. Everybody's seen them before the Super Bowl even happens. Like we just kind of knew everything that was going to happen. And in a lot of ways, like the like the surprise element had been taken out taken out of the Super Bowl. Um and so it was like from the beginning it was it was like totally uh you know hacked into that to to hijack it and use all of those moments that we knew were going to happen to have them talk about us even though we couldn't afford to make a spot to begin with. Right. It also launched the advertising career, the now lucrative advertising career of Anna Kendrick. She's in everything now, right? Yeah. I feel like I, yeah. It was shocking to see her in that, and she was so good. It was like to me, it's like one of her great. It's like Up in the Air and Newcastle. If we made her, like her two great performances. Yeah, I, I, she was great, and uh, I, I can remember it was really funny. Like we, there were so many things that we made for if we made it. Like everybody remembers. It seems like everybody remembers the Anna Kendrick spot, but there's so many other. Like it was like twenty days of like. Myself, Ryan Robb, Dan Keneally, the creatives that worked on it, would go in every day. And it was like one of those projects that kind of flew under the radar at first because at the same time, Droga was making their first real Super Bowl spot. So we had like – it was kind of a weird mix of like Droga had always kind of been this like really subversive agency that, you know – that had done like Mark Echo stuff and like like that didn't feel like uh, and it, so it was like it was like this moment where the agency was kind of on one hand like growing up right not the not the underdog anymore. not the underdog anymore and getting like a real Super Bowl project and that was kind of like the talk of the agency was that we were making a real Super Bowl spot but I don't feel like anyone was really paying attention to the Newcastle thing that was not a real Super Bowl spot. Um, so we kind of got to fly under the radar at the beginning and, and then it started to like pick up steam when we like launched the teaser and people were talking about it and, and the, uh, and so I, I remember like one of the first, when we were, when, when we briefed it, we were like, if we do this right, we should be the, we should be on the Today Show's Super Bowl roundup, even though it's not a Super Bowl spot, yeah. you know? Uh, and, and by so, the way, if you've listened this far, you're an advertising nerd, and hopefully you know this work. But <laughs> if not, like Google Newcastle, if we made it, I'm sure case studies are out there. The site might even be, still be live. Who knows? But be. my favorite element of it was, and I'm, you know, I, it was the deep dive stuff was for me, and I remember just like the the focus group with the really wonky math. Yeah, yeah. You know, I just remember watching that. Movie. That was such a made up spot. Well, that, that, I think that was like my favorite part of that whole project was it kind of goes back to like uh, if if. I always felt like I kind of have my own version of craft, which is like not – which is more like improvisational and like that was like – and, and that whole spot uh, was just like at the last second thrown in where I was yeah. like, you know, it would be funny. Just like 
get everyone to give this give the spot a score. And it's kind of like as a creative, it's a little bit cathartic because we always like to call bullshit on focus groups and and testing. And so this was definitely a shot at at testing. But um, the and the guy that was leading the focus group was a was an account guy or a strategist at Droga, and he was he was great at it. But he he just asked. Uh, everyone in the focus group to give the the spot a score on like one to a hundred, and they all gave like totally random scores, and then he added it up into one score. Right. Like, it was a good score. It was like two hundred and seventy eight. He's like, we got a two seventy eight. And then, what does it mean? And then the other, you know, the other piece of work that um, that you did, probably the one that that most I was like, God, I wish I had done that one is um, is is for pizza for Pizza Hut with the pie tops. And, you know, you talked about some clients are better fit for the agency than others and some know what they're kind of getting into. And you know, I think even David on this podcast mentioned like, you know, that's an example of a agency client relationship where, you know, it wasn't perfectly simpatico. Um, but even within that, you know, to yeah. sort of extract a piece of work like that um, and invent a product. Well, first of all, do you own a pair of – surely you, have a, you own a pair of pie I do, types, yeah. I have they're a quite valuable. Types. I think they were on – yeah, they were like – at one point they were trading on StockX, the, the sneaker site for like – somebody put them on there for like $16,000 or something crazy. You know, I don't think they ever sold for that. But. The idea is sort of undeniable. Was that the toughest thing to sell through just by virtue of the fact that you know, the relationship was, wasn't as clean as maybe some others at yeah. the agency? Yeah, it was tough. I, I think uh, it's like sometimes you want there to be like a – uh, when, when work's being evaluated, especially when you work on something like that, you realize like – you almost want like when other people in advertising are looking at things to evaluate it with like a difficulty score in mind too, like figure right. skating almost. It's like, okay, we we know that like looking at that client, like how difficult that may have been to produce. So we're going to give it like a higher score. Um, but it was – I think we kind of on, – on that client, we kind of fallen into the trap of like you get the brief and uh, you have a budget to produce like a 30-second and 15-second spot to to sell the deal and we we had presented rounds where we the spots would come first and then we would have other activation ideas or like you know spikier things that we would we would throw in the mix but the we'd always end up just making the spot and never having the money to make the other cool stuff right and so that round in particular was like, all right, we can't – when we present this, like we can't present TV first. It's got to be – This can't like, be meeting fodder that makes everyone feel good in the room. But like, yeah. come on, deep down, we know we're never making this shit. It's got, we got to present like the thing that we're making first that allows us to make a TV spot. But it's – the presentation is about the thing that we want to do. So um, that's that's the way that was presented. And um, – I think it made a big difference, and 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 it does, you know. And we kind of knew from the beginning it was like, all right, let's just like the TV spot's going to be forgettable, um, and it's what the client's going to be focused on the most. <laughs> so like, let's. I think you have to know when to say like, okay, that's your thing, and you can like tear that apart and focus on that, and we're going to focus on this thing that we love, and we're we're, we're and everyone's going to walk out of this happy because we we each have our our piece. If that's the way that it has to be done, yeah. then. Um, then so be it. And so, and so that, that worked out. Um, well, one thing I've really admired about your career is like, you know, it's one thing to make great work for Nike, you know, Under Armour, the New York times sort of avant-garde brands. Um, but I have a, I have a special place in my heart for people who can take brands that, you know, are really kind of tough to work on and, and, you know, don't 
obviously lend themselves to like really interesting original creativity and to turn it into something you've never seen before. And like, you know, you worked on Johnsonville and brought to life the kind of like crazy advertising fantasies of real Johnsonville employees. That was a great TV campaign. But I think probably the best example of that is IHOP. And I remember I remember when it was announced that Droga 5 won IHOP and I was like, good for them. They win everything and like they're just piling up clients and and but the work will probably drop off because like IHOP is a is a, <coughs> is a you know it's a retail machine and the advertising has to be about like yeah. the price of can- pancakes and and like five shots of pancakes and syrup on pancakes and then you see the work and it's really you know it's really interesting and it's really surprising and it's a gr- you know turning IHOP into IHOP what a great example of like you know what yeah maybe there are other agencies that could have come up with that yeah but there's maybe one or two or three in the entire world that can take it from a PDF to reality. And you yeah. guys are one of those agencies. Can you tell me a little bit about that process? Yeah. I mean, I think it fits into like, if you look at all the work that I make, it sort of starts to fit into this like Venn diagram of uh, like uh, where stupid meets smart or, <laughs> or brilliant, you know, and like right in the middle of that is like, where is my sweet spot where I like to be? Uh, so I think like IHOB fits right into that. And um that was kind of uh, – it was it was one slide in the pitch deck, that idea. But it was always one idea that like as soon as I saw it, it was like, yeah, we've got to make that. Like that will be really fun. And, and the client was always into it too. And it was uh, – yeah, it was, it was just meant to it, – it really was – the brief was like to show that they're serious. They're as serious about their burgers as they are their pancakes. Right. And so I think it was a great expression of that. But it was also like the fun in it was like just trolling. Everybody and did you come up with that idea in five minutes? Well, I, I didn't come up with it. Um, I, so I don't know exactly how long it took to come up with it. It took me like two seconds to see it and be like, "Yeah, let's, just, <laughs> let's do that. That sounds cool." Right. Um, and then you know you're currently working on Dosekis, right? Yeah. Um, to me, maybe the the greatest advertising, the greatest type yeah. of advertising challenge there is. I. When I first started at CPB, the first brief I got was for Miller High Life. And the, one of the reasons I was in advertising was because of the High Life man and, like, you know, the Wyden Kennedy work for That's the High Life. And I remember it was paralyzing. I was like, there's yeah. nothing I'm going to make or do that will be as good as that campaign. Yeah. And, you know, Dos Equis is another version of that. It's like it's so iconic, the most interesting man in the world. And, and that campaign is so etched in people's souls. Yeah. And so, you know, they tried to move away from it and there were some starts and stops. They bring it to Droga five. Um, and the needle you guys have thread, which is like, forget the man. What if we sort of like fixated on this word interesting? And what if the beer was interesting? Yeah. And, uh, you know, first of all, when you, when you first find out you're working on that, did you feel the same pang of anxiety that I felt working on High Life? Where you're like, this is sort of impossible. Yeah, yeah totally. I mean, I, like, I love that work, and and I like really admire the, not just the work, but all the creatives that had worked on it before. And so, in a lot of ways, you're like, oh, I just don't want to let people down. You know, I think that's like a, a big part of it. And you also know, like, that it is always going to be judged on uh, is, is it as good, and like people like just like the. The general public just like it, it's one of those weird brands where there almost is no brand outside of that work, you know. Right. So like a lot of times when you do try to latch on to something, it all really still comes back to like the most interesting man. Um, so you're right. It was like the challenge was like how do we – we're never getting him back. Um, and as a creative, I don't think you want to – like I wouldn't want to do like the next round of exactly that same stuff. Even though I love it, it's just like you, you got to try to do something a little different. It's not what they came to you for. Yeah, and 
I think another part of it, like that, that is, you know, it's it's owned by Heineken, and it was when they came to us, it was our old Newcastle client that we'd worked with for years that we had a really great relationship with. So that that also helped us be like, okay, this, you know, we can get to something good. And I think it's still like a process too. Like uh, it's it's we. We have a, we're working on a new campaign now that still uses the thread of interesting um, that I think is going to be great, uh, but it's, it's totally different. But yeah, it's it's a it's definitely like a daunting task when you start out with it, and I think there's a reality of like let's have fun with it and know that like yeah we're going to be judged on that and that's okay. Yeah. Like you've grown up essentially at Droga Five. You were a copywriter when you started. You're an ECD now. You manage teams. You got promoted, you know, for a number of reasons, but at the heart of it is your creativity. Um, was it a natural transition for you when you started managing groups of people and teams? Did you kind of have a – did you feel like you were doing a bad imitation of anyone else when you first started as a manager? Yeah, it's, it is weird uh, shifting from being a creative to a creative director. Like the, the, I don't feel like you're ever really like trained properly to do – to make that transition. You just like suddenly are responsible for – for doing that, so it's like a, it's a weird feeling when you go from uh, doing the work and pre- and like talking it over with your partner and and then presenting it to someone else to like all of a sudden your your job is to like sit in a room and like a team's been working on it for a week and they come and you have one hour to listen to all the ideas and you're on the spot to like decide what's good and what's not and what they should focus on. It's like it's I find it actually more stressful in some ways than being a creative. I mean, I was stressed as a creative too, but um, because I feel like I I always liked being able to just do the work. Like if I didn't know if it was there yet, you can always just work all night and like feel like you're you're making progress, yeah. you know. Whereas as a as a as an ECD or above, a lot of times you just have to wait for the work to come and like trust that they're going to pray get that it's and good, pray, yeah. and pray that it's going to be good, and that's like the most difficult thing for me to do to just like not be working on it sometimes. Yeah. Um, so like that, I feel like that was a, that was kind of a tough transition for me. Um, and in that hour, I mean, it's like, it's, it's a, several teams work on something. You got an hour, you got 90 minutes. It's a large volume of work. And what I want to do is I want to just keep going through stuff until like something lights a fire that starts the conversation into yeah. an idea that, you know, starts to build momentum in the room. But people worked on, you know, there's a volume of ideas and people worked on them and it's sort of hard to go next, next. Like, and then I think sometimes yeah. do you ever find yourself grappling with like, do I owe an explanation for why I don't like this and why I want to move on? Yeah. Or, or should I just move on? And there's, you know, and, 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 and risk that person being like, I really liked that. And he didn't even fucking give it the time of day. I've, I, I, I feel like I feel a lot of responsibility to talk, to like talk about every idea and why I might not like it or why. But I you don't want to spend an hour talking. You know, there might be no. three good things and 20 and a and hundred bad and a hundred things that don't work. And that's the nature of it. But you don't want to spend 90% yeah. of the time talking about what's not working. And I think I have like a code language probably that like the, if you work with me enough, you start to just, cause I won't ever say like, I don't like that idea. But if I think the, like, if I don't like an idea, I'll say, yeah, that's funny. But that really means let's just go to the next thing. I don't really like it, right. you know? And I think, like, people get used to that. But if I – and then the other thing that doesn't really make sense, if I really like an idea, I say, oh, that's so stupid. But that's, like right. – in a lot of ways, like, that's the best compliment I can give something is to say that's so stupid. Uh, so I, you, if you work with me enough, you probably get a sense for that. And you're like, oh, that's great. He thinks that's stupid. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I – 
maybe that like I'm not like super confrontational. Like I would never. I wouldn't. I, I mean, unless I just really, really don't like something, I don't think I would ever just like. I'm not the kind of guy that's going to pull something off the wall and say this is terrible. Like bring back something else. I go, I feel like I go into a meeting where it's like I put a lot of pressure on myself to like always find the good ideas and like I never want somebody to leave a meeting with nothing. You know, like I I always feel like I, I want at least like one or two things that are like this is like. This could be something. Let's keep going on this. But let's also like think about something else because there could be something else good out there, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, I sometimes think I sh- pro- like I could probably be harder on – like I, I, I sometimes wish I was the kind of creative that was like, it all sucks. Like bring me something better, you know. But it, I'm – No, you don't. I'm just not that guy. <laughs> I'm, I, I'm very excitable. And I'm very sort of like liberal with like, oh, that could be good and sort of humoring the possibility of ideas. And I, I yeah. think actually sometimes it works to my detriment, which is I can be really liberal about keeping things alive too long, yeah. which is a different form of punishment for people, which is like they work on it and work on it. And then, you know, it's so much work has gone into it. And then at the very last second, it's like, I think we're going to just present the two ideas and not present this one. Yeah. I, there's there's like there's so many things that have changed in the last few years too about like just the way work is presented where like everything used to be like printed out and put up on a board and you would like look at things. I'm, I'm trying to get back to printing out, but like a lot of the, a lot of the presentations now are presented through Google slides, just like projected onto the TV. And I'm having a real hard time, like evaluating work where you just go from like slide to slide and then the presentation's finished, but all the work's not in front of you. You have to be like, okay, let's go back 10 slides to that thing. And let's go five slides forward to that thing. And then the uh, the graveyard is like this new thing that every every deck has the graveyard of yeah. all the ideas that you didn't like that are still in the bottom of the deck. You know, so you have the like sixty page deck, and then the graveyard starts with all the ideas you didn't like. I mean, I get why we work that way now, but I'm like I'm still like having a hard time adjusting to it. Right? I prefer to put everything on the wall and like be able to move things around and say, like, I like these three ideas and we can take these down and these this is the maybe area or something. Like, my brain kill, still works that way. And not. killing things – like, when you say kill an idea, that sounds really negative. But, like, yeah. there's a freedom in the death of ideas. Like, yeah. the removing of things from the wall means that which remains on the wall – Is better. Is better and we can focus on these things and, like, it's a – you know, it's like a blessing. Like let's yeah. let's put all our energy into these three things. Like if we don't – sometimes you have to say it out loud to remind everyone else and yourself. Like we're not trying to make – we're not trying to make ten things. We're trying to make one thing. One you know thing. when you try to buy a house and it's like yeah. it can be a really difficult process and you go like – just to keep reminding yourself, I'm not trying to buy five houses. No, I'm just I, trying to buy one house. I, I think one of the things that I feel like I learned from David very early on um, was that he's, he's just decisive and like will make a decision pretty quickly. And that is pretty liberating as a creative to be like, okay, like I I have more confidence in that idea because he knew he recognized it immediately as a good idea, and I don't have to worry about those other things. We can focus on this, and so I try to do that same thing in a meeting. Like I try not to think too much. Like I think it's easy as a creative director to worry, like, am I making the right decision or the wrong decision? And sometimes I think it's like it's better to just make a decision fast than to than to really like agonize over whether it really is the right decision or not. Just like try to. Trust your gut, make a decision, and move on. Um, we like to end all of these with the same couple questions. The first is: Is there a single word or phrase of advertising jargon that makes your skin crawl the most? I, I think it's uh, there's a, there's a lot of them. 
I think some of the things that that like make my skin crawl the most are not necessarily like industry jargon, but like just corporate jargon in general that gets thrown around in meetings. Like when someone says an idea needs to ladder up to something, like those kind of words that you just never use in the real world. Uh, yeah. So ladder up's a big one that I, I can't stand hearing. One that always throws me is like I feel like I'm in so many meetings now where somebody will say, "We know the we know the who and we know." The why, but we still need the where or the. I'm, like, I'm always doing the math in my head where I'm like, do we know the who? Do we know the why? Or is it the? Is it the, which one is the why? Because I thought I knew the why, but we don't know the why. I can never really do the math of which ones they're talking about, but I just pretend to know. I'm like, yeah, of course, we know the who and the why. But you just triggered for which. me one I hate, which is when someone will question, is this a, you know, is this a a big idea or is this a tactic? Right. It's like, um, well, like, okay, like, was Fearless Girl a tactic? Yeah, they're all kind of the was, same. Was, like, were, was Pie Tops a tactic? Yeah. I don't know. I know. The, there, there's another one that gets floated around now where there's, like, all these different – it's like, well, we have the brand pla- – we, we, we have the creative idea, but we still need the brand platform. Or the <laughs> – like, I don't know. What – are those different? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I don't. Maybe I don't know the jargon very good. Yeah, I still just think of like the campaign. You know, let's come um, back in five years and we'll do an addendum to this podcast. I think we'll know the answer to this stuff. Okay, five, yeah. five. Just give us each five more years. Yeah, yeah. We'll study up on our jargon. Um, in a presentation of your work to a client, what's the most horrifying response you've ever received? I, I feel I, like you're gonna have a good one. I don't know. I've ha- I have had some good ones for sure. I mean, I've had clients that have literally said this is like the worst shit that I I think there was like a phase it was right after the Steve Jobs biography came out and there were like a lot of clients who had maybe read the Steve Jobs biography and took the part about like being a complete asshole to heart and and like that was the kind of feedback you were getting for like a year which was it was just like this really blunt like we would present like a 70 page deck and the client would be like First, the client would let other people, like uh, like his the the minions, kind of give their feedback, which is like, oh, I kind of like that, and I I really like this idea, and then the client would be like, well, I got to say, this is the worst shit I have ever seen in my entire life. I'm now afraid that you don't even understand this brand, and I don't know what the fuck we're gonna do. And then he then he would like start pacing the room, and be like, so. But if you take this idea, this one idea, there's something here, and he would like put that on the wall and then he would basically like rearrange the presentation slowly. Like if you did that first, that might work. And then we could do the, and then we could do this. All right, now we're getting somewhere. And you're like, wait, you're just rearranging. <laughs> the, you just told me this is the worst you've ever seen. And now you've rearranged the pages and you're starting to work. Um, so I've had that happen. I remember we had a client that had us uh, do these like character studies of of uh, their target. Yeah, and so we wrote these character studies. And when they, she's not at Soul Cycle, she's eating she's salads. At, yeah, she's at she's at her favorite coffee shop in Soho yeah. with her diverse group of friends. She loves and her friends, but she's you know she's about her own. Like, we get like, oh glimpses God, of her me. tattoos that tell us the story <laughs> of her life, and we see her. Her collection of vinyl records and it was that kind of stuff. And then, and then they, they had written that stuff and sent it to us. And then there was a, 
a note in the feedback that said, uh, this last note is very important. She absolutely has to have a cool prosthetic leg. (laughs) (laughs) This will bring some much needed levity to the spot. It was like, what? Like, what? (laughs) What? What? Like, why? Why? A cool prosthetic leg, and does that does that bring levity? Like I am so confused. Um, so I've had that. I've had that happen, and I've also had like I've had clients call me at like I had a client call me at like eight o'clock at night at home, and uh, I answer the phone, and they're like, uh, "Hey, bud, I just wanted to give you a chance to apologize for that meeting today." No. Yeah. And that's an awkward conversation because it's like, well, I can't apologize for that. You know, like my my job is not to have good meetings, you know, like we're going to have bad meetings and I can't apologize for the bad meetings because it's like I kind of lose all integrity if I apologize, especially if it's like I didn't really think I needed to apologize for me. So it turned into like a 20-minute conversation of him trying to pry an apology out of me that I just couldn't. I mean, what what you just said is the difference between the 1% of best creative agencies in the world and the 99% of agencies uh, (laughs) that aren't there, which is we're not in the business of good meetings. Yeah. And I think 99% of the agencies out there, I think it's, it's easy to fall into the trap being like, we walked out, they're happy. Yeah. And it's like, they're happy now. You're going to make this. Yeah. And they're not going to remember. It's it's not going to be their fault for liking mediocrity in the room because it presented well in the room. It's going to be your fault when you make it. Yeah. And it doesn't fulfill it doesn't fulfill to, its promise. You have to have like a few filters on the, on your work before you – like because it is easy to fall in the trap of having – of just having good meetings. But you have to also – like there's a few that I try to apply, which like one is like before you present work – think like, okay, if you sell this, you're going to have to like fly to LA and spend like 10 days away from your family shooting this. Are you sure you want to make this? And like, this is going to be your life for the next month. Like, are you sure you want this to be your life? Like, yeah, it does answer the brief, but are you going to really want to make this, you know? So that's like, that's one filter. And then also like, just like your personal philosophy of like, I feel like I always try to I want I like work that feels like I'm getting away with something, you mm. know? Like it, it there needs to be some element of it that like I'm not supposed to do for me to really enjoy it. If it all feels like, yeah, this is like this is the spot we should have made and we're not doing anything subversive here at all, then it like I'm never going to get excited about that. But if there's some element of like people are going to see this and they're going to wonder how the fuck we sold this or they're yeah. going to wonder how we got how we were allowed to make this like that's the kind of stuff that i get excited about and i want to make um so i always like try to ask myself like what's the thing is there some part of this that like we technically shouldn't be doing and on that note final question the one that got away what is that idea that you could never quite sell you know but it just it stays with you and you love it and you know it would have been great if someone would have just bought it i think there's not a lot like i i kind of move on from things pretty fast so like i I'm not like a bottom drawer guy that like has too many. There's there's definitely like several. They're not even my ideas, but several ideas that have floated around the agency that you kind of there's almost like a challenge to sell them, and we presented them like a hundred times and they never sell, even though you think they're a good idea. Um, 
so there's always some reason that those don't sell. There was one project that we tried to do that, like, uh, I always kind of loved. And it was – we were living in Brooklyn and so me and my wife were driving around Brooklyn and and uh, she she kind of pointed out that um, there are no nets on any of the basketball hoops in Brooklyn. And, and I was thinking about it and like at that time, the Brooklyn Nets had just moved to Brooklyn and I was like, yeah, how fucking ridiculous is that, that this is the home of the Brooklyn Nets and you never see a basketball hoop with a net on it in Brooklyn. And so we started thinking about it, and uh, and I and I talked to David about it. I'm like, we got to come up with a way to put nets on all the all the hoops in Brooklyn, and that became this project that we called the Brooklyn Net, which we we uh, we found this uh, company in Alaska that makes fishing nets that are like indestructible fishing nets, and they make it out of this stuff called Dyneema, which is like this like. Uh, ridiculously strong fabric. Um, and so we had this fishing net company make like 20 prototype basketball nets out of Dyneema. And we took them to the Brooklyn Nets. And and, um, and I had a meeting with Kevin Garnett where like it was kind of awesome just meeting with Kevin Garnett. Sure. It was like he's, he's an alien. Yeah, it was. It was. He's. Like, he was really cool, and like he walked in the room, and he's like one of those guys. that's like it seems like an optical illusion when you meet him because he's so tall that like it looks like he's walking on stilts, you know. Um, but like, I love basketball, and I, and and uh, so just to like talk to him about basketball and the idea it was like really cool. Um, but it ended up being one of those projects that couldn't happen because like one, the, the Brooklyn Nets weren't really into it. They didn't like. <laughs> they wouldn't let us call it the Brooklyn Net, which kind of like started to destroy the idea and then you also had to like work with the park the new york city parks department to implement it and it was like that kind of turned out to be this like bureaucratic nightmare that couldn't happen um and so it just became like too much work and wasn't wasn't happening but like it is one of those things that i still have the nets in my office and every time i see them i'm like oh that would have been cool scott bell thanks for doing this today and uh I look forward to more work that makes me seethe with jealousy. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. All right, man. All right. Thank you so much to my buddy Scott Bell. Thank you to JSM Music and the producer of this podcast, Jeff Fiorello. And as always, if you're enjoying the pod, please rate, review, and subscribe and share it with a colleague or friend. And until we talk again, peace. <laughs>